0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today in the book of Luke called A Firm Grip on the Gospel. So turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, What Shall We Do?
1: It's been a great deal of time ago now, but years ago, the late Francis Schaefer wrote a book entitled, How Shall We Then Live? And the book, as I remember it, was about, you know, Western philosophy and where we are now, and then, you know, instead of accepting the unsustainable presuppositions of contemporary thought, and how to turn from that to live an intentional life, one in keeping with scripture, one that was meaningful rather than purposeless. Let me see if I can put that another way. Schaeffer was calling upon us to turn from the bankruptcy of the way of life handed to us by our culture to repent and embrace the values of the kingdom. He called it, how shall we then live? In other words, he wasn't simply criticizing the presuppositions of our day. He's calling us to embrace the gospel. And as I see it, that's positive. You can't just condemn that which leads to death. You have to show the pathway that leads to life. Both are required. I mean, first of all, who would embrace the pathway that Christ offers if other pathways were also fine? I mean, after all, in Christ's teaching, he said his pathway involved embracing the cross and self-denial and the abandoning of all things to follow him. I mean, who would choose that? unless every other pathway led to meaninglessness and ultimately to death. So you have to show what leads to death. On the other hand, in some circles, it's been popular only to condemn and never, in grace, to offer a new way of living that's attractive and life-transforming. The ministry of condemnation, although attractive by itself, is a ministry that also leads to death. We've been studying the book of Luke and this well-researched life of Jesus. And up till now, Luke has presented us not only with the infancy of Jesus, but one incident when Jesus was 12. Then Luke directs us to John the Baptist, who's the forerunner of Jesus, preaching a message of repentance for sins. The section we're going to examine today is found only in Luke. And I have no doubt Luke interviewed people who were there when John preached, and so he adds this section. It has to do with a dialogue between people and John. What should we do with John's harsh message? Yeah, you say, repent, and fine, we're going to repent, but what should we do after that? See, these people want clarification. What shall we do? And if one studies both Luke and Acts, the two books written by Luke, Luke at several times highlights people who ask just that question. In Luke ten twenty-five, Jesus is approached by a lawyer. What must I do or what shall I do, he asks, to inherit eternal life? Or consider Acts 2.37. Peter has just preached at Pentecost, the first ever Christian sermon, and Peter ends by pointing out that the same Jesus whom you crucified has been made Lord in Christ. And when they heard this, they were, as Luke says, cut to the heart, deeply pierced in their spirits by the words he said. What shall we do? And I mention this because as we read our text today, that's precisely the question. John's preaching repentance for the days of the kingdom of God are about to break in. Well, one answer to the question of what shall we do might be we should feel guilty about our sins or we should be committed to letting God show us what to do next. But as we're going to see, John is very practical. So let's read Luke three ten to 14. And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So as we can see, there are three groups of people who ask the question, what shall we do? The first group is a generalized group, everyday people in the crowd. People are unsure of how to respond. You know, perhaps as John was preaching, there was a discussion that was going on. God's clearly speaking through this man. They would have said he's a prophet of God. We can't afford to ignore his message and simply go home and allow things to go on as they were before. So what shall we do? And the answer, says John, is that the one who has two tunics must share with the one who has none. He's also commending the sharing of food. I mean, these are the basic necessities of life. Don't look the other way. When you see the poor and the needy, that's what you should do. Now, this command to share what we have, now that takes some time to unpack. There are those who have used this as a justification for socialism, the redistribution of wealth. Now, is that what John is saying? And the answer is not hard to come by. The answer is no. John's not speaking about the reordering of the state or social programs. He's speaking to individuals. See, I found in our day, there are all manner of people who claim they're compassionate when they ask the state to deal with human needs, but they've closed their own hearts. Now, in truth, it does take some time to come to terms with John's practical teaching on this matter. I mean, does he mean that when you see a beggar in the street, you've got to give him what he asks for? See, I remember while pastoring that we had actually a con man who stood on the sidewalk every Sunday morning as people were coming to church from the service. He had a knee brace on, he was limping, and I did notice that it bothered him at times, and so he switched the brace to the other knee to give the first leg a rest. He was a con man. I also, in my getting to know him and who he was, found out that he was a man given to lying, but he was making a very good income at my church. Of course, he paid no taxes on that. So what was to be done? Can we? because we don't know the history of every beggar, simply turn a deaf ear to the whole lot of them. You know, to that I give three responses. The first is that we should prioritize transparent and reputable agencies who are principled and wise and give generously to them in order to care for the needs of the poor. Why? Because our faith demands this of us. We must care for the less fortunate, but we should do it wisely. The second regarding the beggar on the street. So let your conscience and the leading of the spirit guide you. To that, I offer no general rule. I've known some people who set aside a monthly amount for just that thing. And when that fund runs out, they wait until the next month. Others give on an individual basis and some don't give to the street beggar at all. Now, none of these responses violate the command of God to care for the poor. You see, in a church I served for many years, we on a monthly basis had what was called a benevolent offering. We also had a food bank downstairs in the church building that responded to the needs of the poor in our community. I said there were three responses, and here's the third. Occasionally, someone we know is in need, and when we become aware of that, I would say, let your pastor know. At times, it might be advantageous for the entire church to be involved, but don't close your heart to those who have needs. We must respond. See, that's the first group that came to John with a question of what they should do. The second group, perhaps not surprisingly, were the tax collectors. You know, they almost always were Jews who knew their community well, and they knew who was likely to cheat the tax man. Now, these tax collectors were able to set their own wages, and that's why they often overtaxed the population and lived in luxury. These people were roundly hated by their community, but they had been hearing the message of John, and they were coming to a conclusion. They'd sinned, so what should they do? And John simply tells them, stop lining your pockets through overtaxation. Stop cheating the people. Collect only what you're authorized to collect. Now, there's a lesson for anyone who's involved in public service of any kind or in business of any kind. People need a fair wage, but never a wage that comes from deception, from cheating, from overpricing something or some commodity, or through any illegal means. Now, the third group, this group is surprising. Roman soldiers, my goodness, what are they doing there at the ministry of John? But we know that a great many Romans and Roman soldiers came to love the God of Israel. So here they are, and they're deeply troubled. Not only must Israel repent, they conclude they need to repent as well. Now notice what John doesn't tell them. He doesn't tell them to resign from the military and to get out of Israel. Instead, they were to resist the temptation that their profession brought them. Don't threaten population of Israel. Don't falsely accuse people in order to get rid of problems. Don't accept bribes or demand them, but be content with the pay you're receiving. Live within your means. See, every profession has temptations that are attached to it, and a great many professions, such as police or military or other government positions, allow a person to use their authority. When you use your authority, you're required to serve, not to be served. Did you get that? And did it sound familiar? Jesus came to serve, not to be served, and that's what you must do as well. If you're to be his followers, use your jobs to serve.
0: Faith is never disappointed. Back to the Bible Canada can testify to the hand of God in and through this ministry. As one of our listeners reports, we wanna be part of what God is doing through Back to the Bible Canada, not just in Canada, but overseas. That's why we support. Beyond a doubt, God will accomplish his purposes. He chooses to employ his faithful people as his hands. As we begin a new year, may I ask you to consider a financial gift to support and sustain this ministry, or perhaps even consider becoming a monthly partner at the beginning of 2024. Your generosity allows us to enter into this new year fully supplied for what the Lord has in store for his kingdom. To give a gift or become a monthly partner, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: moves from the individual questions of people listening to John to the question of what they should do with the man himself. What shall we do with John the Baptist? So here I'm reading Luke 3, 15 to 17. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie he will baptize you with the holy spirit and fire his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire you know luke begins by remarking that the people were in expectation that is they were expecting john to make an announcement regarding his identity There was a messianic expectation that was intensifying, and no doubt, many thought, perhaps, John's the Messiah. He just simply hasn't announced it yet. After all, look at the crowds. Look at all Israel listening to him. Perhaps that's his method from the start. You know, first he speaks of repentance and ends the deep sin and corruption in the nation. And then when the time is right and all eyes are fastened on him, he makes an announcement. I'm the one you're waiting for. For it's all in the timing. We know that. And when the time is right, that's just what he's going to do. At least that's what a great many people thought. What shall we do with John? Well, let me give you reasons, that is, arguments that people might have had for believing that John really was the Messiah. Well, one, he appears suddenly in that sense. He fulfills Malachi 3 verse 1. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now look, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And it ends with first a messenger preparing the way of the Messiah. Now if one simply focuses on the fact that the Messiah suddenly comes and that John came suddenly onto the scene, seemingly out of nowhere, well, you can see how some people would have pointed to the suddenness of John's appearance and have concluded that he must be that long-awaited Messiah. And then there was the obvious holiness of John. He's not a man given to compromise or to personal sin. His self-denial is evident, so forth. At any rate, the rumors were swirling, and when one reads the Gospel of John, And to those who don't know, please don't confuse John the Apostle with John the Baptist. So when you read the Gospel of John, John the Apostle says, John chapter 1, verse 19, and this is the testimony of John, that is, John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? You see, it wasn't just the rank and file in Israel. They were all discussing this. The leaders, the religious leaders of the country, Front and center, they had this question, and they began, says John the Apostle, with a first question, are you the Messiah? And of course, they didn't believe it. What they really meant was, are you claiming to be the Messiah? They're looking to discredit him. And however John the Baptist answers, you know, that's going to have different reactions. See, if he says he's not the Messiah, you know, it's going to bring great relief to the religious authorities because they didn't like him in the first place and he's already exposed their hypocrisy. But John doesn't seem to care a great deal about these people, and John would surely have been aware of their reprisals should he claim to be the Messiah. But on the other hand, if he says he's not the Messiah, he's gonna disappoint his followers. Many desperately want him to be the Messiah. They're aching to hear him say that. Indeed, later, as John continues to deny that he's the Messiah, and he continues to point towards Jesus, people begin to desert John. The crowds start thinning out a great deal. And so we might say there's a great deal at stake here. And let me speak personally. As a man who's been a pastor for many years, No pastor wants to say anything that will decimate his attendance. In fact, let me expand on this to say that no one, especially those who have seen success in any area of life, wants to do anything that will detract from their record of success. You know, to go from success to being a failure, that's unacceptable to almost everyone except for John. John never doubts who he is and who Jesus is, and he never doubts who should own the spotlight. That's a life lesson for all gifted pastors. You know, do people delight in you, or do they delight in Jesus? Luke records that after the birth of John, Zechariah, the father of John, said, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And I have no doubt that John reminded himself of that daily. His job was to decrease as the Messiah would increase. Christian leader and Christian of every stripe, does that describe you? See, by all indications, John never wavered in this. And so as John sees that the questions about his identity are reaching a place where he has to address this matter, he doesn't even hesitate. He says, I baptize you with water. I'm calling for repentance. I'm announcing the way of the Lord. I'm a forerunner of the Messiah. And when he appears, I'm not worthy to get on my knees as a slave might do and untie a single sandal strap. The man to come is going to eclipse me at every point. And when he does, that will be the greatest moment of my life and ministry. (laughs) Yes, John goes on. The one to come will baptize in the Holy Spirit. John means that the Messiah will cause the Holy Spirit to come upon his followers. Well, John couldn't do that, but the one coming after him could do that. See, that's what the prophets of the Old Testament predicted would happen in the last days. Joel 2, verse 28, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And Jeremiah speaks about this outpouring of the Spirit in Jeremiah 31 verse 34. Jeremiah says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. See what John the Baptist was saying is, Look, I can't do any of this stuff. John is saying, If you want to follow me, you should follow me to the extent that I'm pointing out the Messiah. And that's so important for all Christians today to hear. You know, I hear some people in our day who follow very popular teachers tell me about the positive messages these preachers preach, to which I respond, have they caused you not to look at them, but to look at Jesus? And if not, why are you following them? Now, John adds something else. Not only will the Messiah baptize with the spirit, he will baptize with fire. And John says, I can't do that either. See, when he baptizes with fire, says John, he burns the chaff, or to put the matter plainly, he burns the unrepentant with unquenchable fire, fire that's never put out. Again, to put this matter plainly, he says that the coming Messiah will enact the great end time judgment where the unrepentant are thrown into the lake of fire. The fire of that place is an eternal fire that will never be quenched. Now this matter, that the Messiah would do both, bless those who would receive him with grace and forgiveness, as well as punish those who reject him, well, we know that this, in the end, even confused John. Matthew records that John, while he was in prison, was having doubts about whether Jesus actually was the Messiah. And Jesus responds by sending John a message. The blind are seeing, the lame are walking, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised. Clearly, all that is a part of the end-time baptism of the Spirit when the Spirit restores all that's ruined by the fall. But here's where the baptism of fire was absent. I mean, after all, by the time John was in prison, Herod Antipas, as well as the corrupt religious establishment, went on as before. What John could not have anticipated is that the baptism of the Spirit and the baptism of fire would be separated in time. See, Jesus had come to save people from their sins, and only after he had gathered in his own would he return and eventually bring about the great judgment at the end of time. And that's to say, John wasn't wrong in his expectations. He just didn't understand the timetable when those events would happen. That is, in his first coming, Jesus did not bring judgment, but he came the first time to save men and women from their sins. Now, that being said, we are left with John and the question that people were asking. What shall we do with our sins? And second, what shall we do with John? And John never doubted the role he played. And that's the ultimate answer to our question. What shall we do? We shall not follow any leader who doesn't consistently point out that he or she is not the Messiah and not the object of people's following. All pastors, evangelists, theologians, and Bible teachers are at all times to disabuse themselves and their followers of adoring loyalty. For if a Christian leader makes followers of himself rather than followers of Jesus, he has led us astray.
0: Reject those who do such things. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you, What would be some of the indicators in a church that a leader is more concerned about making disciples for themselves than for Jesus?
1: Well, yes, and how easy it is, by the way, to be that kind of a leader. I mean, especially uh, when people start saying, you know, good things about you and you listen and pretty soon you believe you're all that. You know, as I had a very good friend that said, you're all that in a bag of chips. Um, So, you know, it's very easy. But here's, I think, the difference the good and godly leader continues to point people away from themselves and towards Jesus. No, not I, but Christ. And may Christ be the focus of the conversation and not the leader. And that's one of the ways we can tell.
0: Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Firm Grip on the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Every Bible truth should be known. Every Bible truth should be lived. And frankly, it's easier to know what God says than it is to live it well. That's a gap Back to the Bible Canada wants to address in our new blog format. Starting 2024, Dr. John Newfeld and other trusted Christian leaders will provide a Bible-focused and practically-oriented resource to bridge the gap between faith and life. This resource will focus on the how-to in matters like shaping a consistent prayer life, wrestling with temptation, and navigating the advance of years. Each theme will reflect not only what the Bible says, but how our theology can be translated into our experience. Well, you can check out each new issue at backtothebible.ca, and be sure to subscribe to receive each new article as it's available sent directly to your inbox.